0: good morning I'd like to invite you to uh, open to the uh, New Testament letter of Paul to the Romans yes fantastic some of you know what church you're at this morning It'll be uh, Romans chapter 1 today and uh, we're talking um, this this little section of our lengthy sort of uh, tour through uh, this letter. Uh, I'm calling this uh, section of four or five weeks here the overture, right? And uh, by that, what I mean is uh, we are um, going to be looking at some of the themes, uh, some of the ideas that just keep coming up over and over again throughout the rest of the letter. So uh, there are some big, huge themes in the book of Romans, and we need to have some Uh, opportunity to become familiar with those and uh, that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks this uh, overture kind of reviewing the main um, notes uh, the main themes of uh, Romans. It's a book that uh, um, at least uh, some writers have said actually is uh, maybe the most important uh, letter uh, that was ever written Um, and uh, over the course of our tour through this letter, uh, we're going to see some of the um, not just life-changing, but culture and world-changing effects that this letter has had uh, in the world around us. Uh, All of that to come. Uh, As we get ready to do that, though, let's uh, invite God to uh, bless our uh, time in his word. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Help us to um, settle there today. Help us to take all of our turmoil and doubts and fears and wondering. Help us to take our wandering and our self-sufficiency. Help us to take all of that together and come to a place where we can recognize your faithfulness to us. Lord, help us to settle there today. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So our text today is out of Romans 1, um, and I want to just begin at verse 14, and we'll read a handful of verses. Uh, So I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. It's the translation that you have in the uh, uh, pew there in front of you if you've taken your own Bible. Uh, The words might be a little bit different, uh, and we will look at why that is today. So um, Romans 1, verse 14. Paul says, for I have uh, a great sense of obligation to people in our culture, he's writing to um, Greeks and Jews, to people in our culture and to people in other cultures, to the educated and uneducated alike. So I am eager to come to you in Rome too to preach God's good news. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work. Saving everyone who believes, Jews first and also Gentiles. This good news, this gospel, tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. And we'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. So... um about two weeks ago, uh, I stood here and I preached a sermon. Two weeks ago, I preached a sermon, and uh, this is what I love. Right? I've been preaching um, sermons from time to time for about 25 years now, Matt. And this is, this never fit. This two weeks ago is no uh, anomaly. This is how it always works, right? And this is what I love about this. Right? Two weeks ago, I preached a sermon, and um, over the course of the last two weeks. Uh, There have been all kinds of conversations about that sermon. Uh, I know uh, explicitly of at least five different Oasis groups now that have had really uh, deep wrestling with the sermon from two weeks ago. Uh, You've had um, uh, this sermon uh, in front of you uh, for two weeks. Uh, Two weeks ago, uh, it went up on our website. And you have access... Uh, not just to hearsay about the sermon, but you actually have access to the sermon itself. You can actually hear the actual words as they were being spoken. And if you wanted to, uh, you could come into my office and you could get a copy of the original manuscript. You could actually see the original document. You could have access to that. And if looking at the website and hearing the actual sermon and reading the actual manuscript isn't enough, guess what? You can go even one further. You have access to the author. Some of you exercise that, that access. You can actually go to the author of the sermon and say, what did you mean when you wrote that? What were you talking about? You have access to all of those tools, all of those perspectives. And even given all of that, I love this. There's nothing wrong with Given all of that, the conversations that are swirling are, what did that mean? What was he saying when he said that? Where is this going? Why did he put it that way? What is he up to? Lots and lots of questions. And some of the conclusions that you drew uh, were not only different from what I intended, which happens every single week, but... Some of the conclusions that you drew were actually the opposite of the words that I actually used. Isn't that fascinating? Now, you could say, listen, that's because, Mike, you're just not that great of a preacher. You're really muddy. You're not clear, right? You're not a clear speaker. And there's a lot of truth to that. I'm never, ever, ever as clear as I want to be. I'm never as clear as I think I am, right? I'm, I'm, there's, this, there's just a lot of fuzziness. That's, that's the nature of verbal communication. It's also true that there's fuzziness in the listening. Uh, That you don't listen from a a completely blank slate perspective. You come and you listen through filters. And you hear things uh, one way and somebody else hears things another way. And you listen through the filters that you bring. And there's nothing wrong with that. What that means is that you're human beings who have a history and experiences. And you bring all of that into the room with you. All of that is true. And so we have to spend time asking each other, what do you think he meant? What was he saying? What did you hear? What did you mean? All of that happens. Now we're standing at the beginning of a letter called Romans. Uh, The letter um, that we call Romans uh, wasn't written two weeks ago. It was written 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. And you don't have access uh, to a recording uh, of Paul's dictation of this letter. You can't hear the words as Paul spoke them. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, you don't have access to the original manuscript of this letter. It's gone to history somewhere. And even if you did have access to the original recording as Paul spoke the words, and even if you did have access to the original manuscript, for most of you it wouldn't help you anyways because you couldn't understand it. It's written in a language that not only do you not speak, but it's called a dead language. Koine Greek is a dead language that nobody speaks anymore. Having access to those things wouldn't help you (coughs) much at all. Uh, And you can't really ask the author what he meant. Not in a direct way. And further, unlike the sermon that was preached two weeks ago, a sermon that was written for you, to you, knowing you, uh, Romans wasn't written to you. Uh, Romans uh, wasn't written uh, knowing you. Paul writes to the church in Rome, not to you. You're only listening to half of the conversation. In other words, we have some work to do. Uh, We have to bridge some gaps. Not just little gaps. They're cavernous gaps. Canyons that we have to somehow get across. And we need to travel carefully. We need to travel slowly. We need to not leap to conclusions. Have you ever uh, been on a walking bridge across a canyon where the slats of the bridge were spaced too far apart? Maybe a rope strung them together. You don't leap from slat to slat to slat. You tread carefully so that you keep your balance and arrive at your destination. And part of keeping our balance as we traverse this canyon, is going to require that we use, yes, here it is, you guessed it, our imagination. Why? What does that mean? We have to do two things. We have to use our imagination, which is not make-believe. It's not making it up. But it's about trying to engage a text that wasn't written to you to make it speak to you to find a way to get from where you are to where the text is. Uh, So some of the work of that imagination means that we have to find ourselves in Rome, 56 AD. We we have to find a way to get there. Uh, We we have to find a way to stand in the streets of a Jewish tenement settlement in Rome and, and, and find a way to imagine... Uh, that we're overhearing uh, Phoebe coming and presenting the words of Paul for the very first time to that community. Uh, What are the questions that you would have been asking? What would have drawn you to that gathering in the first place so that you could listen to what Paul might have to say to you? Uh, What fears and concerns and hopes do you have in your heart as you come and listen? What are the challenges in your life that you're facing? What is it like to be a slave or a Jew or a slave owner, a conqueror or the conquered in 56 A.D. in Rome? And hear these words. We have to find a way to get ourselves there. And then we have to engage our Holy Spirit driven and guided creativity again. In this time, it's not to transport ourselves back to 56 AD Rome, but this time is to somehow grab a hold of Paul by the scruff of his robe and bring him into Midland 2020. We have to get from Rome back to Midland again. Uh, We have to go through the door from the opposite direction, so to speak. What would Paul see? If he stood here, what questions would Paul speak as we imagine him now, not speaking to a first century Roman church, but speaking to our church here today? What challenges would he address in us? What brokenness would he call out in you? What hopes would he stir to life in our midst? We go through the door from both directions. We stand on both sides. That's what it means. That's always what it means. To faithfully engage the word of God. To bridge that canyon. To journey to Rome and back again. And if we don't do that, if we don't use our creativity and our imaginations and find a way to stand there and for Paul to stand here, then there's a a terrible risk that we face. And that risk is that we're not hearing God's word anymore. Instead, we're hearing our own words. We're locked in the prison of our own moment and our own culture and our own assumptions and our own perspective. So let's get free from that. Let's let God speak. And verses 16 and 17 are as good a place to begin that work as any. Verses 16 and 17 really uh, stand at the front of this letter as almost a thesis statement. This is a densely packed proclamation of all of the things that Paul is going to do in the rest of this letter. And we can see right from the beginning that Paul is emphasizing the fact that this letter is written to two very distinctive groups, Uh, different cultures, he says, rich people and poor people. Uh, He says, I'm writing to both Greeks and to Jews. And over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack and explore and walk around in those differences a little bit more extensively the ways that those differences would have been felt and they would have reverberated through the life of the church. But for now, just recognize that the differences, uh, any differences that we happen to face here in our church, Midland 2020, whether it's a difference between Democrat and Republican, rich or poor, young or old, liberal or conservative, whatever the differences, the differences that we may have, shrink in size to microscopic levels compared to the differences in the church that Paul is addressing. The theme is going to get played out all the way through Romans. And so a little bit later on in this letter, Paul is going to urge uh, the Christians in Rome to welcome one another. Welcome each other. Be at peace with one another. Uh, He's going to say a little bit later, uh, love each other. And for Paul, that's never mere sentimentality. He's going to say, love each other. And then he adds, don't just pretend to like each other. Don't just pretend to do it. Really do it. In other words, Midwest nice isn't enough. Really love each other. And then he's going to show us how all of that works itself out. Uh, We need to go and find a way to stand in Rome and see the cavernous differences that were dividing the congregations there and then come back to Midland and maybe realize that churches with differences are nothing new. It's been a part of our DNA from day one. And so we're going to find in this letter some real tools theological tools, practical tools that will help us to live with differences. Later on in Romans, for example, we usually think of Romans as this theologically heavy, profound text, right? It's this deep uh, treatise on doctrine. And there in the midst of this doctrinally dense treatise, we find something like this. Have dinner with each other once in a while. Invite each other over and have a meal together. It's practical steps to bridge the differences in a congregation that is profoundly divided. How many of you have ever had the experience of sitting down for a meal with somebody that you knew you had profound ideological or theological differences with? And you sit down and you have a meal and you break bread together and you share your stories. And as you do that, you realize that in the midst of your differences, you can also be deep friends. Have you ever had that experience? That's the sort of practical work that Paul is encouraging the church to embody. In the January series this year that we, observed, that we uh, simulcast uh, here um, in, this, in this room, uh, there was a conversation between two ideological uh, enemies. and they, they characterized themselves in that way. One was a six-day literal creationist. Um, and the other one was a theistic evolutionist. One thought Genesis 1 and 2 were literal, six days of creation, and the other thought Genesis 1 and 2 were poetic and theological, and that God used the process of evolution uh, to create the world. The respective organizations of these two men debate, uh, sometimes battle, always compete, with one another, for hearts and minds of Christians. And they would say that this is not a light disagreement. Uh, But each one believes that the other is harming the church. They believe that the views of the other are harmful. But these two men, these two scientists, sat down and ate a meal together. They shared food, conversation, stories, life. Not just once, but over and over and over again. And over time, they came to a place of respecting each other's faith. Why? Because they said they they saw Christ in one another. They recognized Christ in the other. And Paul says that this good news that he's proclaiming is ultimately centered on Christ. That this is good news about Christ that this is a good news about Jesus Christ. And where Jesus Christ shows up, everything is different. And so they began to recognize Christ in one another. Paul says that this good news changes things. It has power. And the power of Christ between these two enemies caused them to become friends. Neither one has been convinced by the other. Neither one has given up their views. But at one point in this public conversation, in front of something like 10,000 people, the six-day literal creationist said this, listen, Christ is all that matters. Christ is all that matters. And so listen, he said, if a literal six-day view of creation is an obstacle that you just can't get past. If that is the obstacle that is holding you up, in other words, he said, if you can't be a Christian the way that I'm a Christian, then please be a Christian the way that he is. Because Christ is all that matters. Theological equipment, the power of, of Christ, the power of the resurrection. Practical advice. Jews, Gentiles, creationists and evolutionists, Republicans and Democrats, sitting down and sharing a meal once in a while. Then the thesis goes on, verse 17. He says he has this, deep concern for Jews and Gentiles coming together for unity in the body of Christ. And then in verse 17, he says this, this good news, this gospel tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from first to start, from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. So now there's a problem. Uh, Now we need to go a little bit more carefully to the other side of the door. Uh, This is one of the uh, densest, most complex sentences that Paul crafts in the book of Romans, which itself is incredibly dense. And we've only looked at it from one perspective, from one translation, with one voice. And if we stop there, we would have to assume that now suddenly in the middle of his thesis statement, Paul is radically shifting gears very abruptly. Somehow uh, he's gone from this social dimension of the gospel, Jews and Gentiles finding unity together, to this deeply personal dimension. How can you be made right with God? Maybe we don't even notice how jarring that transition is because we live on this side of the door. Uh, we live in mostly an individualistic culture, and we live with an evangelicalism that likes to ask the very question: How can you be saved? How can you be made right with? How can you be made right with God? When I was a, a student in college, um, we would do evangelism training from time to time, and one of the ways that I was trained to do evangelism, and some of you will. Um, recognize this, right, is that we were trained to ask people the question, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? Right? Your standing with God, your individual life, your relationship to heaven. If we simply stayed on our side of the door here in Midland 2020, and we never traveled to Rome 56, we might assume that Romans now is answering that question. Answering the questions that we're asking. We might never notice that there's a potential problem. We might never even ask the question, what is the question that Paul is answering? You know the Bible isn't just a collection of answers to your questions, right? The Bible isn't just a collection of answers to your questions. The Bible is our teacher. And the Bible is teaching us all to ask better questions. So ask the question. What is the question? Is Paul answering the pressing question of the Christians in Rome? How do you get to heaven when you die? How can you be assured of your personal salvation? If we do a wider reading of the literature of the time and other texts of Scripture and texts between the Old and the New Testament, we would be led to believe that the question of how do you get to heaven when you die wasn't an important question to the Christians in Rome at all. That if anybody was asking it, it wasn't being asked widely or urgently or routinely. They weren't wondering how they could get to heaven when they died. The Greeks in the church really didn't believe in all of that anyway. And the Jews weren't worried about it. They're asking different questions. In addition to some of the external context that we can look at, there are two tip-offs right in the text itself, right in our verses the actual language that's used, and the scripture that is quoted from Habakkuk. So here's our translation. The good news, this good news, this gospel, tells us, and then the underlying part uh, is going to be um, translating a single phrase in the original language uh, each time. So tells us how God makes us right in his sight. That's the question that we might want to ask. It's a perfectly important question. It's a perfectly good question. How do you get made right in the sight of God? And he says this is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. But we've already been alerted to the possibility that uh, there might be more going on here. There's an abrupt change in the tone of the thesis from the social dimension to this personal dimension now. Uh, There's some question about the historical context wondering why people in Rome would be so worried about this that Paul would make it uh, the thesis of this letter and so maybe we want to check another translation uh, maybe we want to look at the Lexham English Bible and here the underlying portion is re- is translating the same words the right and this time it says for the righteousness of God is revealed in it from faith to faith just as it is written but the one who is righteous by faith will live. Does that sound a little bit different? say, well, I don't know, the Lexham English Bible, maybe that isn't a good translation. Here's another one, the King James Version of the Bible. And this is what the King James Version of the Bible says, the New King James. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. We can do one more, the American Standard Version. Uh, If you're looking, you know, if you say, oh, my Koine Greek is a little rusty, um, and you're looking for a good uh, sort of literal translation of the original language, uh, the American Standard Version is a great place to go. And there we read this For therein is revealed the righteousness of God from faith unto faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God. The underlying portion is actually translating those words, the dikaiosune garteo, the righteousness of God. The dikaiosune garteo isn't a righteousness of character that God gives to you to make you righteous. It isn't God's gift to you in this verse. It's the righteousness of God himself. It isn't, God, it isn't that Paul is saying, now let me tell you how you can be righteous. Now let me tell you how you can be put right. He's saying, in the gospel, what's revealed is the righteousness of God. We see God's dikaiosune. One more wrinkle, dikaiosune is a Greek word that translates two different Hebrew words, and it can mean both righteousness and, And justice. Here's a thought experiment for you. Every single time as you're reading through the book of Romans, every time you come across the word righteousness, in your own mind, substitute the word justice for just a moment. Uh, One uh, interpreter of Romans says the art, the art of reading Romans, in other words, part of the work of going through the door and back again, is that every time you read Uh, the word righteousness, you also have to let the idea of justice hang there with you in that space. There's also justice. The righteousness of God isn't the status that God gives to you. It's not a gift that he gives to you in this verse. It's God's own righteousness. So that's the gospel that we see. The righteousness of God or the justice of God now when you're reading through the bible and people in the scriptures are asking for God to act justly to have dikaiosune when people are asking God to do that what are they saying to him what they're saying without fail is god remember your promises The justice of God isn't just that God does nice things for people who deserve it, but the justice of God, the dikaiosune teu, is that God is remembering God's own covenant promises. In other words, what Paul is talking about here is God's faithfulness to his covenant. Covenant is another big word that we're going to encounter here in Romans. Covenant is just a really important sort of formal promise, like a treaty. And this covenant of God takes us all the way back to Genesis 12 and then Genesis 15. And uh, we find God coming alongside a man named Abraham. And God says to Abraham, listen, I am going to make you a great nation. Do you remember this conversation? He said, look at the sand and look at the stars. And that's like, that's like your nation is going to be, the people of your family. And through your family, Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world. I'm going to bring shalom to the world. I'm going to put the world right again. I'm going to fix everything through the family of Abraham. You say, well, you're reading a lot into that. I might be reading a lot into that word. But Paul himself reads a lot into that word. And so in Romans, in chapter 4, and then chapter 9, and in chapter 11, he's explicitly going to talk about the story of Abraham and God's covenant promise to Abraham. And he's going to say, now what you're seeing is that covenant promise is being finally, decisively fulfilled. But in the meantime, between the promise and the fulfillment, God's people look around and they see incredible injustice. The people of Abraham, um, by this time in Rome, are a defeated puppet nation. No real power, no autonomy, no influence or significance in the world. How is it possible that these people, these people, could bring hope even to their own neighbors much less to the cosmos. The Jewish residents in Rome suffer, and there's a long history of God's so-called chosen people suffering. It goes all the way back to the year uh, 930 B.C. when the kingdom of Israel is split in two. And already then, uh, the prophets are saying, uh, this seems to be taking us in the wrong direction. Uh, David and Solomon, it looked good. It looked like we were increasing. It looked like we were actually going to be able to live out this divine mandate and enjoy this covenant uh, that God made with our forefather Abraham. But now now it's a mess. Another 200 years later, the Assyrians come in, and now the tribes of Israel are just wiped off the face of the map. And there are two tribes of Judah that are left over. And the prophets look around and they're saying, we thought the divided thing was bad. But poof, they're all gone. Samaria's sacked. What about God's promise to Abraham? What about God's character? Is God the kind of God that makes promises and then just gives up on it? Have you ever wondered that? Is God the kind of God that looks at the mess that I've made and says, I wanted to work with you? I really wanted to be your God. But you have made such a mess of things that I'm done. Where is God? When after the Assyrians now, the Babylonians come in. And now it's not Israel, but it's Judah. That's wiped off the face of the map. And into exile they go. And from that Babylonian exile to this day in Rome, the people of Abraham's family have been living with a PTSD-like experience, one trauma after another to their nation. And so the Psalms are filled with it. It's one of the reasons Alyssa talked about lament. It's an important lens for this book. Psalm of David in Psalm 143, Lord, hear my prayer, listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Don't bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is more righteous than you. The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in the darkness like those long dead. So my spirit grows faint within me. My heart within me is dismayed. I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all of your works. I consider what your hands have done. I spread out my hands to you. I thirst for you like a parched land. From the exile to Rome. In the midst of suffering, Jewish men and women and children have tried to hold on to their faith. They've tried to hold on to some idea that maybe someday, somehow, beyond what they could see, beyond any rational hope, that somehow God would be faithful to his word and God would vindicate their faith. See, that's the question. Is God going to be faithful to his word? Is God going to do what he said? Is God ever going to put the world right again? Does God care about us anymore? See, that's a very, very, very different question than how do I get to heaven when I die? Is God just? And Paul stands here at the beginning of Romans and says, in the story of Jesus and the good news of Jesus, God has shown himself to be just. His covenant faithfulness has been demonstrated once and for all. So faith, calling out to faith. What does that look like? It looks like this in the Psalms. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains and your justice like the great deep. This stalwart, unstoppable conviction that God is faithful to his promises. It looks like Daniel in Daniel 9. Lord, in keeping with all of your righteous acts, your covenant faithfulness, turn away from your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem. Your city, our holy city, our sins and iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear our prayers and petitions for your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor at your desolate sanctuary. Now, remember the promises that you made. Remember your temple. Remember your holy city. Everybody knows that you made promises to us. And now we're a laughing stock and you look like a fool says Daniel, remember your promises. And God answers, Isaiah 51, Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become like a light to the nations. They're going to see my faithfulness. It will become like this light. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way. And my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait and hope for my arm. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants die like flames. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. Now, Paul says, that righteousness has been revealed in the person of Jesus. In our world, in our history, in our moment. This time has come, the moment of salvation, the time when God is putting the world right again. That's the good news. And one of the features of this new, just world that's announced and ushered in by Jesus is that there is a new single family of the people of God, both Jew and Gentile. So it isn't just that, Bridging differences is a nice feature of the gospel. It's the soul of the gospel. How do you get to participate in the unfolding world of justice? By responding to God's faithfulness with your own faithfulness. From faith to faith. I'm going to do this quickly from Habakkuk. Habakkuk stands in this line. I told you that the words are one clue, and the quote from Habakkuk is a second clue. Habakkuk uh, stands as a prophet um, at a time um, after the Assyrians have sacked uh, the northern kingdoms, and he kind of rages against God. Uh, he laments, and he says this, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? Violence, I cry out to you but you do not save me. Must I forever see this sin and misery all around me? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed and useless, and there is no justice given in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, and justice is perverted, bribes, and trickery. Habakkuk is saying, where is justice? When are you going to put the world right again? And God comes back and he says, listen, don't pay attention to the circumstances that will lead you astray. Don't look at the circumstances. Why? He says it's actually going to get worse. If you think the Assyrians were bad, wait till you see the Babylonians. They're still coming. But then he says this in chapter 2, and this is the quote that Paul lifts up. Knowing the story of the Assyrians, and knowing the story of the Babylonians, and knowing this plea for justice, God says, don't trust in your wealth and don't trust in your cleverness. That won't get you justice. It will only lead to more injustice. Have you ever noticed how people who are trying to hold on to their wealth actually promulgate injustice in the world? But he says in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 4, what you need to do is live faithfully, live by faith. Through faith, you will see my justice. My faithfulness will unfold before you. That's the incredible invitation of God's faithfulness. We see it displayed in the person of Jesus. We see God's forgiveness. We see God's embrace. We're assured that God has not given up on us, that he hasn't abandoned you, people of God, and that injustice never gets the last word. God says, trust me because I am faithful. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness to your word. Help us to respond with our own trust in you. Help us to love you and to love you well. Amen.